0: Bibles if you would and turn to James. We're continuing today in our series through the book of James. Today we're looking at James chapter 1, verses 13 through 18. James 1, 13 through 18. I'd invite you if you're able to please stand for the reading of God's Word. This is James 1, 13 through 18. And every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of His own will, He brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. This ends the reading of God's Word. Please pray with me. Father, may the words of my mouth now and the words of all of our hearts together be pleasing in Your sight. O oh Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Show us Christ and His grace in this passage. Make us people who trust our Heavenly Father, that trust You, knowing that You are good to us. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. Well, have you ever done something to help someone uh, and they accused you of doing exactly the opposite and all the parents of teenagers said? Right? Your teenager has disobeyed you and really made a mess of things. Maybe you placed some responsibility on them uh, with strict instructions, not only to help them, but to protect them, to keep them safe so that they would learn and mature and grow. But they blew it all off and disregarded your rules and their responsibilities. And things quickly went south from there. Uh, Maybe, we're not talking about your teenager, maybe you are that person. Uh, Maybe you've been that child, even if you had to reach way back in the cobwebs of history to remember a moment like that, sure we've been there. Maybe a car that met an untimely demise, uh, grades that suffered, or disregard for your parents' care and wisdom and guidance led to even messier situations with sin and consequences rearing their ugly heads. And in this grand display of inimitable teenager logic, you turned and looked at your parents, you pointed your finger at them and said, this is all your fault. This is all your fault. Well, here on the heels of James's explanation of trials uh, in the Christian life, uh, trials that are given by God for our good, to test our faith, to produce perseverance, uh, all with our loving Father, right, standing by to give us wisdom when we ask for it. He's just walked through this, and he's turning now to this all too common scenario. Um, he turns to those who have failed the test and have fallen into sin and temptation, only to say to God, it's all your fault. It's all your fault. Have you ever done that? Usually we don't say it in so many words, but have you ever thought or felt that really it was God's fault that you were doing what you were doing, that you had done what you had done? And rather than trusting your good Father, uh, you don't trust Him. And you maybe point your finger at Him and you say it's all your fault. Well, what I hope you take away from this sermon is something like this. Because God is good and never changes, we fight temptation by trusting Him. We don't blame God for temptation, for sin. We shouldn't anyway. We should trust God in our fight against temptation and sin. Because God is good and never changes, we fight temptation by trusting Him. So I want to work through this argument that James makes this morning by looking at uh, really three three things we need to know about sin and temptation, uh, particularly as they present themselves in the context of trials. James is notoriously difficult to outline. We're really kind of finishing up his talk about trials today. And when you see him say, my brothers, as he goes throughout the letter, he's kind of turning into a new topic. So we're finishing out the uh, count it all joy, my brothers section. And he's looking here about how we respond to sin. Three things we need to know that James kind of unpacks here. First, how we get sin and temptation wrong. So that's the negative side. How we get things wrong. How we get sin and temptation wrong. Secondly, what's really going on when we sin? So what's actually happening when we sin? Then finally, Uh, the hope of the gospel for sinners. So let's look first uh, at how we get sin and temptation wrong. Uh, Look with me at verse 13. James says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and He Himself tempts no one. We can't assume, I don't think anymore, that everybody at church on a Sunday morning understands what sin and temptation and evil even means. We don't really have categories uh, for that anymore. Uh, You read your dessert list at your favorite restaurant and you see decadent chocolate cake on the menu. and Things like, that was sinfully delicious. We just have no concept of what it means to to reckon with sin and evil and temptation. Uh, But it's a matter of life and death to understand these things. The Westminster Shorter Catechism says that sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. As I've said it to at least Sophie, it's when God says yes and you say I don't think so, when God says no and you say I think I will. That's sin. It's any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. The point at which your actions are out of line with or in opposition to the holy character of God expressed in His law. That's what sin is. And we see here, we get sin and temptation drastically wrong when we point at God and say it's all your fault. It seems kind of logical. Maybe it's plausible in what James has already said. After all, hasn't he said that our trials come from God? God sends us these trials. They're trials that he has intended for our lives. They're decreed by God. Um, He has a purpose for them. The Bible supports that. Uh, Joseph told his brothers, Genesis 50, verse 20, You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. And Job cries out in the midst of his anguish, The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Sweating drops of blood in the garden, what did our Savior pray? He pleaded with the Father, If you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. God is sovereign over all things. But as one commentator observed, there is an additional and impermissible step that we cannot take. He explains, suppose in any given experience of trial, I give up trying. I listen to the tempting voice and he's British. He says, come a spiritual cropper, that slang for getting bucked off a horse. In other words, suppose I really blow it. Is it not then all his fault? Did he not put me here? Was it not by his will that I found myself cornered by temptation, which proved too strong? What do you think? James nips this way of thinking in the bud. He takes; uh, he's two steps ahead of us, and he counters it immediately. And it's he says it's really the oldest trick in the book. In this, not just in the book metaphorically, it's the oldest trick in the book. So it's no surprise to us that James, this leading convert to Christianity, this leader of the early church, would think back on the book and recall uh, from his lifelong instruction in the books of Moses that this is nothing new. This is the oldest trick in the book. It's as old as creation itself. Remember the story of Adam and Eve. We've heard it read this morning. Genesis chapter 3. Remember their encounter with the Creator uh, just after they had rebelled against His good provision for them. He gave them everything. Life with Himself. Everything they needed to live and to live well. And Adam says, it was the woman you gave me. Then Eve says, it was the serpent you created. We often think that the buck is passed from Adam to Eve to the serpent. I don't know if you notice that in the reading. It's like, no, he did it. No, he did it. And eventually all fingers are pointing at the serpent. No, all fingers are pointing at God. They're all pointing at God. The woman you gave me, the serpent that you made. In other words, it's all your fault. They're saying, I am being tempted by God. I think James has this in mind. I think he's thinking about Eden. And he's thinking about this scenario in the garden because in just a few moments, when he gives us the good news of who God is, he's going to turn to creation. He's going to draw that picture of God from creation itself. We're making, we're making this case this morning that humble faith trusts the Father, and if at any point in time in history that seemed like a given, like a no-brainer, it was in paradise. Adam and Eve were God's perfectly righteous people, in His perfectly rich place of blessing, under the royal presence of His his personal rule in their lives. What could be better than that? It was quite literally heaven on earth. And all they needed to do was humbly trust the Father. Humble faith, trusting the Father, following Him. But they fell prey to the oldest trick in the book, and they falsely accused the Creator. And this becomes what we all do. Every human heart does this now. James' readers were in a wildly different context than Adam and Eve. There was no heaven on earth. Uh, they were likely Jewish Christians, we've noticed, who had been dispersed and uh, run off from their homeland for the sake of the gospel. You can look at that in Acts chapter 8, Acts chapter 11. Uh, these people experienced suffering and sickness, things unheard of in the paradise in Eden. At least some of them were being defrauded and oppressed by evil bosses who lived in luxury at their expense. James will have hard words for them at the end of James. There were quarrels and fights breaking out even in the congregation of the people of God. And James addresses that. This was no peaceful, easy paradise. Not so different than our lives, right? Is your life an easy, peaceful paradise all the time, 100%, completely, every day? Mine isn't. Not at all. You ever face suffering, sickness, injustice, strife, sin, sin? At best, have you ever wondered what in the world is God up to, or at worst, what in the world God's problem is? Have you ever falsely accused your creator, saying, I am being tempted by God? Here's what James says. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. James counters this with no uncertain terms. God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Remember the story in the Gospels of the rich young ruler who comes and he he approaches Jesus, right, and he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? How did Jesus respond to him? What did Jesus say? He said, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. God is so pure that he can't even look on evil what the prophet Habakkuk says. God can't even look on evil. He can't be tempted to evil because evil violates His very nature. It is at odds with who He is. The very definition of sin is to be out of step with who God is. God can't tempt you. He tempts no one. We've considered God's sovereignty and His providence. Um, I like what Thomas Manton said about the relationship between God's providence and our sin. Manton said in His providence He knows about sin without sin. As a sunbeam lights on a dunghill without being stained by it. Are you picking up what Manton's laying down? You shine a flashlight on a cow pie, nothing happens to the light. The light doesn't stink. Manton goes on, God is so immutably good and holy that he is above the power of temptation. Men soon warp and vary, but he cannot be tempted. We should tremble as we are so easily tempted. We should tremble. It should make us really, really humble when we approach God, knowing who we are and what we're prone to do. Maybe you're here this morning, and for the very first time, you're considering what it is to have a sinful heart in the sight of a holy God, and you're wondering, how can sinners even stand before a God like this? Maybe it's not the first time you've thought of it. You know that it's not in God's nature to sin, but it is in your nature to be prone to wander. Prone to leave the God I love, we sing, right? So we can't blame God when we're tempted to sin. That's how we get sin and temptation all wrong. That's the first point. Second point now, let's look at what's really going on when we sin. What's really going on? Look with me at verses 14 to 15. James writes, "...but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire." Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. You see, in reality, it's not God who tempts us. It's our own fatal desires that lure us into sin, that lure us down a path that ultimately leads to doom and destruction. It leads to death itself. In theology, we call this concupiscence. That's for free, but if you like theological words, concupiscence is the word. Even our desires themselves... Those desires for anything contrary to God's law, even before you act on that desire, is itself sinful. Now, depending on what translation you're reading from this morning, uh, verse 13 might read something like Each person is tempted when he is dragged away or carried away by his own desires. I actually like that. The word uh, that's being translated there is a word from the world of fishing. So I actually really like that word. I like fishing words. Uh, the word means to take in tow taken in tow. Temptation seizes on our desires, okay? And then we're taken in tow as if hooked on the end of a line, and we're dragged by that line, by the affections and inclinations that are already present in our hearts. And these desires prove fatal when they latch onto the bait that's dangled in front of us. The translation, lure and entice, it's great. These are more fishing words. There's evidence in other Greek manuscripts outside of Scripture that this is from the world of fishing, and he's using this as a master word picture artist, showing us what it's like to be lured and enticed into sin. If you've ever done any fishing, you know that uh, one of the keys to success is to present a bait that appeals to the fish, right? There's actually a lot of keys to success. Your fishing buddy should always be less good at fishing than you, because that'll make you feel really good about your day fishing, Uh, There's a lot of keys to success unless they have beginner's luck and then it ruins the whole day. But bait is a big thing when you're fishing. There's so many different baits you can use, so many lures you can use. Sometimes you go to the store and you think maybe I'm the one being baited here to spend money. But you can do all sorts of things when you're fishing. If you're fishing um, under docks for bass, you're going to use a certain kind of lure presented in a certain way. If you're going to fish for catfish, you just want the smelliest thing you can find in your fridge, way in the back. But you see... It's not the bait necessarily, it's the desire of that fish. I want to see what that hungry bass or that half-blind hungry catfish really wants. And then I'm going to dangle that in front of it. It's when he's lured and enticed by its own desire and takes the bait. Then you pull back on the rod, you set the hook, so we have that fish in tow, and then we reel him in. That's the picture that James paints here. Uh, People in a different uh, day were really fond of saying, that the devil presents the bait and hides the hook. That's what's going on here. The bait will be different for each one of us. It will be tailored to the context and the situation and the desires and the sinful inclinations of your heart. Uh, We've mentioned that James readers were facing their own unique pressures, right? They suffered oppression and injustice. They seem to have been desiring things like recognition and respect by those prominent in their society. You see that in James 2, this... Uh, Don't despise the poor man who comes into your assembly. It seems that they wanted this respect and recognition they weren't receiving from the rich, those better off. They didn't want to be silenced, but to have a voice in the community. James 3, and the tongue, and not many should become teachers. There's nothing wrong with these things in themselves, to have a little bit of respect, to have a voice, but they're pursuing them not out of a godly motive. James says they're pursuing them out of bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. That's what the devil had to present them that's the bait that needed to be dangled in front of them in order for them to bite what bait does the devil have to dangle in front of you what bait does the devil dangle in front of you we could come up with many things and it would be unique to each one of our hearts that's why we confess our sins week after week because we know that we so often take the bait it's a duty that we have, Proverbs 4.23, to keep our hearts with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. It's not a problem out there. It's a problem in here. Jesus said, Luke 6.45, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. So You see, it's not an out there problem. And it's certainly not a, God, why are you doing this problem? It's not God's fault. It's not the devil's fault. The dog didn't eat your homework. It's something in you. That's what James is saying here. Lured and enticed by your own desires. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. James moves from this picture of the lure and the bait and fishing. And now he's in the world of uh, the garden once again. It's this genealogy of death itself. This is the family tree of temptation. It's been said, there are three mutant generations here. The mother is evil desire, the daughter is sin, and the granddaughter is death. And this death is spiritual and eternal forever and ever. So when we're lured away and enticed by our own desires, it sets something in motion, something horrific. This family tree, this hideous genealogy. We were created for life and blessing in the presence of our Creator. Why would we ever trade that? in the first place. That's not how sin works, though. As Christians, I mentioned before, said often, uh, they present, Satan presents the bait and he hides the hook. He presents the sweet in the cup and hides the poison, they're prone to say. They're, prone to say. they're fond of saying, we just don't see what Satan is holding in front of us. And then we, we give in. I think John Milton put it really well in Paradise Lost. Speaking of Eve in that moment of temptation, greedily she engorged without restraint and knew not eating death. However attractive the bait might be, it's not worth it. It's not worth it. If you continue unrepentant, hooked and in tow behind sin, you reveal that you were never really trusting the Father in the first place. We have to trust our good Father. We have to understand His grace and run to Him. So the question now, we've seen how we get it wrong when it comes to sin and temptation, what's really going on with sin and temptation. So how do we get out of this mess? That's a great question. That's the question that I think the Bible was written to answer. How do we get out of this mess? I think when a sermon finally gets to answering that question, it's, it's really preaching, and it's really a sermon. How do we get out of this mess? Let's look at that together. The hope of the gospel for sinners. Look at verses 16-18. to James makes a case for the character of God. Both God as He is in Himself and God as He comes to us in salvation. And it's full of hope, full of reasons to humbly trust our Heavenly Father. Verse 16 and following. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. I can only imagine that after James has just laid open the hearts of his readers and explained to them, it's not God, it's something in you that's the problem. They were in desperate need of this rich, beautiful reminder of the gospel, who God really is for us. And that's what we get here. Sin is a problem in you. It's not with God. It's within you. It's within your own desires. Don't blame God because here's the good news. Far from being against you, God is for you. God is for you. If you're a Christian, you have reason to rejoice even in your struggle against sin. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers, James says. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. You see, if God were only good in the sense that he is perfectly upright in his character and in no other sense, if he were only good in that he were holy and without sin, you couldn't sleep at night. That would be the most terrifying truth in the world. But that's not the only way God is good. He's not just good in himself. He's good in your direction. He's good for you. He's good towards His people. He is good in your direction. Earlier we said that James explains temptation and sin by remembering the original fall of Adam and Eve. And now he's going to, before the fall, to creation itself. You hear this imagery of creation. When the formless void was shrouded in darkness, God spoke and said, let there be light. And there was light. And when the hearts of His chosen were dark, blinded in sin in the darkness god said let there be light of his own will james says he brought you forth by the word of truth that you should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures of his creations what does scripture tell us about god's creation what did god say every single day of creation and god saw that it was good He saw that it was good. Of course what God makes is good, because God is good, and he never changes. God only creates good things. And that means if the faithful Father of lights has begun a work in you, it's a good work. And it's a good work that he's going to finish. It's a promise that we're given. He will bring it to completion at the day of Christ's return. We can be sure, 2 Timothy 2.13, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. You see, we find this rich answer to the problem here, this rich answer to this distrust of God, this rich answer to the desires that lead us into sin, mother desire, daughter sin, granddaughter death. But here we see the father of lights and what he brings forth in the hearts of the redeemed, what he makes new, this family tree of his grace. So in the middle of trials, we have to stand the test by fighting against sin. How do we do that? We trust the Father. We know that He's good in our direction. Always for you. James tells us near the end of the letter, Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. You see, we have to trust the faithful Creator, compassionate and merciful, from whom we have received every good gift. What is the greatest gift? of all. If God is good and He's always and only ever good in your direction, what is the greatest good we have received from Him? The Sunday school answer is correct here. The greatest good is Jesus. It's Jesus. Romans 8.32, He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? If he's given us Jesus, it means everything. And I mean everything in your life. And everything he sends your way, Christian, is good. It's good. Matthew 7, 9-11. to 11, The snake and the rock, right? Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him. If you ask him for bread, he's going to give you bread. If you ask him for a fish to feed you, to sustain you, he's going to do so. You might think that snake is a snake, and you might think that that stone is a stone, but it's not. It's God's good gift to conform you to the image of Christ, to sustain you in the middle of trials, even when it doesn't look like it, even when it doesn't feel like it. He has given you the good and perfect gift of Jesus Christ. And if God has given us Jesus, what won't he give us? So, humble faith, trust the Father. It doesn't point our fingers at the Father and say, you made me do this. It trusts the Father. Because God is good and never changes, we fight temptation by trusting him. Let's pray together. Father, Help us to always remember that you are good in our direction. You are good towards us, and we can trust you. Root out the sinful desires that pull us toward destruction. Help us cling to our Savior, Jesus Christ. May we see your grace working in us. Help us to trust you and to know that you only create good things and that you are going to finish what you've begun in us. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.